um, and his last request was to have his bones completely boiled and to be carried essentially as a skeleton at the front of an army to beat the Scots one more time, which I think is one of the more metal moments of medieval history. So I'm a big fan of that. The Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Ask the Expert with Steph. Welcome back to Ask the Expert with me, your host, Steph Storer. And I'm delighted to welcome back our friend and historian, Chris Riley, to discuss none other than the she-wolf of France herself, Isabella of France, Queen of England, wife of Edward II. Now, we have had an episode a while back on him, so you might remember a little bit of the information you're going to hear. There might be some crossover, but our primary focus today will be Isabella, of course. So without further ado, let's welcome our expert and get to some questions. Welcome back to the show, Chris. Thank you very much for having me back. Let's get started, as I always like to do chronologically with our topic or the character we're talking about. From the beginning, let's talk about her early years and her upbringing. Yeah, so as you know, we've seen we see through history many noble women. We don't really know where their kind of story starts. So for Isabella, we know that she was born roughly in the year twelve ninety five, and we only know that based on the fact that her closest sibling, the future Charles the Fourth, was born roughly a year before. And she definitely turned 12 before she was uh, later married to Edward II. So roughly, she was born in 1295. At least we have a year for Eleanor of Aquitaine, four years where she could have been born. So yeah, roughly born in 1295, probably in Paris. Parents, as far as we can tell, um, loved her very much. They were very, very um, fond of their children. Uh, It's, of course, Philip IV, Philip the Fair of France, and his wife, Joan of Navarre. Um, In terms of upbringing, again, like many noble women of the time in the early 13th, uh, sorry, the late 13th century, she was groomed to rule, but groomed to rule in a very specific female way. She was set up for a political marriage as, you know, her her kind of contemporary will have been, including her her brothers. Um, But she was she was used as a political tool as as uh, as young girls were used at this time quite a lot but um, as far as we can tell she lived a a fairly happy um, childhood um, educated in in Latin obviously she spoke French she's French um, didn't speak a word of English probably never did for her entire time as Queen of England but who needs English anyway when you can speak French um, but yeah her life um, very quickly got taken out of her hands and within a few short years she was destined to you know become the future queen of England. Awesome. So now, okay, I don't know if there's anything that you want to fill in before we start talking about, I feel terrible that we have to just, our next question is just jumping right to her marriage, right? Because we want to keep talking about her, but leading up to meeting Edward, Edward II, um, or the marriage itself or their relationship, is there anything that you want to kind of touch on before we start getting to the actual marriage? I think we can just jump straight onto the marriage. To be fair, she was um, she was betrothed um, at the age of uh, age of around four or five years old. So 
as much as her childhood was was probably quite happy for those two years and and spent with her parents um it was very very quickly apparent that she was not going to be spending much time with them and would be you know whisked off to england very 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 soon how did the decision to um marry edward come about how did they kind of set them up so i guess for, for context we need to go a little bit further back beyond uh, isabella and edward ii um back to you know sort of just before she was born in the 1290s, um, Edward II's father, um, Edward I, there's a lot of Edwards in this story, but I don't think a single Henry, which is odd for this period. Um, but yeah, Edward I, sometimes known as Longshanks for his long legs, um, or Hammer of the Scots, which I guess is relevant to this part of his story. Um, in the 1290s, he'd um, exploited a um, succession crisis in Scotland um, and really tried to lay claim to the Kingdom of Scotland um, and make it a um, a vassal of the English crown. I don't want to say it was a complete failure because there was a period of, of English control in Scotland, but overall, I mean, we could probably call it a draw um, or a tie. Um, but part of the kind of war with Scotland was the threat of a war with France. Um, Everybody, well, not everybody, um, the oldest alliance, one of the oldest alliances in history is is called the Old Alliance, which is between Scotland and France. I think it was signed in 1295, so around the year that um, Isabella was born, um, which tied those two kingdoms together. Basically, if England goes to war with one, the other one would attack, um, making the future Hundred Years' War and Edward I's war with Scotland quite difficult because um, it would always bring in this second kingdom. But towards the end of the of Edward I's um, life, I said in the 1290s, tension was picking up again between England and France. Um, and as always, a way to smooth over the cracks was to just get somebody married to somebody from the other place. Um, so in this instance, they actually did it twice. Um, so it was a double diplomatic marriage um which saw her her aunt it's technically her half aunt because it was her father's half sister um margaret married to the um fairly recently widowed or widowed i'm not quite sure which way um edward the first and also saw his eldest son the future edward the second betrothed to isabella of france so in a nutshell um edward the first had lead as had a reign filled with with war, whether it was with with Wales or Scotland or with France, um, and this this kind of double marriage proposal was supposed to kind of almost paper over the cracks of those relationships. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where how we get to the future Edward II because he's still just Prince Edward of Carnarvon at this point, and uh, Isabella of France being betrothed. So now they're going to smooth over all the cracks, and everything is you know, unicorns and rainbows <laughs> when they get married. I think one of the biggest things, again, I hate to turn the focus onto Edward, but there's just so much to talk about with him too. One of the bigger stories, I guess, that we hear about Edward II is his favorites. Yeah. When did that start and how did that affect his marriage? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. It's a huge question. Like you said, there's there's so much when it comes to the reign of Edward II and by default then his queen, Isabella. Um, so for, for kind of a greater context, Edward II is not the most um, well-regarded English monarch. Um, he is usually reduced down or boiled down to his apparent um, homosexuality. Whether that's the case or not, I don't think it's necessarily relevant. And I'll try and explain why I think that's the case. But ultimately, um, and we'll get on to the later favourites, as I'm sure that as this story kind of progresses. But um, famously, his his first and probably the, the true love of his life, his first favourite was a young, a um, Gascon noble called P.S. Gaveston. Um, he'd been around the English court since around the turn of the um 14th century so around the year 1300 um him and his father had been kind of lower um nobles in the court of edward the first and it was around this time that the young prince edward again still not king as another seven years later um 
still not king found a, a at least at the very least a a wonderful friendship with this young gascon noble obviously if it's a friendship no one minds about friends and even to a lesser degree no one really minded if there was a sexual relationship as long as it didn't interfere yes I'm not saying that homosexuality or anything like that was was approved of. Absolutely not. It was incredibly um, homophobic period to be alive. Um, but, you know, what happens between the sheets kind of tended to stay there. Um, but that was not what happened with, with Pierce and Edward. Um, so we roll forward a few years um, to when Edward is now King of England. Um, and again, we can now re- reintroduce Isabella back into the story. Um, Edward becomes king on the death of his father in 1307. Uh, interesting side note about Edward I. Um, he dies on his way to Scotland to once again apparently hammer them. He never really did. Um, and his last request was um, to have his bones completely boiled and to be carried essentially as a skeleton at the front of an army to beat the Scots one more time, which I think is one of the more metal moments of medieval history. So I'm a big fan of that. Um, but anyway. Back. Those little anecdotes are like one of my favorite reasons for doing these podcasts <laughs> because, you know, I would never think to ask you, did Edward the first ask <laughs> to have his bones boiled down? <laughs> you know, so that's great. Thank you for those. Keep them no coming. Worries. I'll keep them coming. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Edward the second is now king. Um, with his young favourite, Piers Gaveston, at his side. Um, In 1308, um, Isabella, around 12 years old, is being being crowned, sorry, I I I always say coronated, and I always mean crowned, being crowned Queen of England, uh, or so she thought, essentially. um, Piers, as this unofficial leading noble, organises a giant kind of coronation, um, party as such, but there is no mention of Isabella whatsoever. Um, he sits next to his his friend, we'll call him Edward, um, as the king. He has his coats of arms everywhere. There is no mention of Isabella as queen whatsoever. And this is after Piers has already been exiled from court once before. Um, he is then brought back by Edward when he's king. And this is just a small example of one of the many reasons that Pierce was physically um, kind of socioeconomically, culturally in the way of Isabella's relationship with Edward. Um, Like I said, I don't totally believe that um, the sexual nature or the apparent sexual nature of his relationship with Pierce was the issue for um, the rest of court. One of the main things that Pierce Gaveston is known for uh, is being a social climber. He was noble, absolutely, but he came from a small noble family from Gascony. He wasn't a, um, you know, he wasn't a Beaumont or a Leclerc or anybody like, he wasn't a well-known noble. He, you know, he was a bit of an upstart. So people didn't like the fact that Edward was showering him with, with titles and he even gave a lot of the jewels and kind of wedding gifts that had been sent um, by Philip IV of France to his daughter to Pierce, um, which is a you know massive kick in the teeth. I think if you are a young girl, a queen, the daughter of a king, um, you know you, I can imagine she was pretty you know humiliated by by Pierce. And and you know this is just within the first five minutes of essentially stepping foot in the kingdom. So um, pretty much from the get go, there was a there was a third in their relationship. What is she expected to do? I mean, a lot of the queens at the time were kind of, you know, having mistresses or having, you know, someone on the side is not necessarily an outrageous thing. It happened somewhat frequently, but not necessarily with a man, of course. So was she expected to just kind of turn a blind eye to it or was she permitted to be loud and angry? It's a really good question, and I, you hit the nail on the head. You know, mistresses, royal mistresses were were completely, I don't want to say accepted, but for lack of a better word, accepted, um, certainly in, in courts of Europe. You know, I think we spoke about it when we were talking about the anarchy last time. Henry I, going back, you know, 
200-ish years, my maths is terrible, had, you know, 24 illegitimate children. Um, yes, his wife probably really, really minded, but it's never really held against him. It's just, it is just a fun anecdote. I think the difference is with Piers Gaveston, and we'll see later as well with his, I think probably his more notorious and, and far worse favourite. Um, with Piers Gaveston, he didn't just fulfil the role of a queen in terms of this this kind of life partner to the king. He also took advantage financially. Um, he was, you know, endowed with with titles. He was Earl of Cornwall. He, he was he was absolutely despised by by all, pretty much all of the the nobility of England. Um, which you know ultimately led to his to his downfall. Um, and again, Isabella, back to talk about her a sec. She's a child at this point. Whether whether you know she was old enough to get married, you know the 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 age was around twelve, where it was considered completely fine. She is still a child. You know, she's twelve, thirteen, fourteen years old at this point. I don't think at that age I was able to comprehend what relationships were and weren't. So I can imagine it was probably just a very confusing and quite lonely time for her. Um, but she certainly didn't let it kind of um, colour her impression of what it was to be a queen, a queen of England. Um, as we'll see later in her story, I think she she holds herself um, to a very high standard and, and in high regard anyway. Um, I think she's, she was, she's very, very intelligent, very diplomatically astute, as we'll see. Um, but ultimately, she didn't really have to be annoyed because everybody else was annoyed for her. Um, famously in 1311, um, a set of ordinances um, was placed on the king. Um, ultimately, it was to control um, or to stop the control of Piers Gaveston. He again was exiled, very, very quickly brought back by Edward. Um, but, you know, the, the, the leading nobles, they already had this precedent set with Magna Carta, you know, from the century before. There was a there was legal backing that was in place to stop a king from doing certain things. Yes, those um, legal restrictions had chopped and been chopped and changed over the over the century since Magna Carta, but there was a there was an understanding that nobility could do something. So yeah, thirteen eleven we have the ordinances that see um, P.S. Gaveston removed. Um, again, like I said, it doesn't end well. He comes back, um, but he doesn't survive for very long. Um, within a year, he is captured at Scarborough Castle, um, not too far away from where I am. Um, he's captured at Scarborough Castle. He is supposed to be brought to London to be tried, but he is executed before he gets back. And just a quick final note on Pierce and Edward. I think Edward and Isabella, and I'm kind of hopefully going to make this point later, are two of the most misunderstood and kind of misrepresented monarchs in, in English history. But I think what's really sad about Edward is I think he truly does lose the love of his life when Pierce is executed in 1312. And I think we can say whatever we want about um, politics and economics and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But at this point, ultimately, just person on person, I think it, it's it's a real tragedy for Edward. You know, he doesn't even get to see him in London have the trial and then executed. He's He's taken out and he's just, you know, essentially his head's cut off and that's it, done. He doesn't even get to bury him until several years later. Um, but Edward II holds a grudge and he would eventually get his uh, revenge um, on the nobles that that kind of carried this out, including his cousin, uh, Thomas of Lancaster, who he would later have executed um, for going against um, Edward and his new favourite. Um, because, yes, he may have been truly heartbroken. I truly believe he was for the rest of his life. Um, but it didn't stop him moving on relatively quickly. It sounds like you're suggesting that he he moved on relatively quickly with someone else that was not his wife. <laughs> but now they they obviously did have children together. Um, was there any affection between the two at all, or was it purely obligation that led them to being able to have a you know family, quote family, mm. and children? Yeah, I mean, I think there must have been some level of attraction, or at least a, at least on Isabella's part, um, 
as always with with medieval descriptions of monarchs it's always quite difficult to tell and what's the truth and what's just um very very generic you know tall fair not not so much tall dark and handsome but tall fair and handsome are the other words usually used and edward ii is no um he's not excluded from this he was described as tall athletic handsome funny um you know very much in the physical vein of his father so i think isabella as a young princess uh as a young queen sorry must have looked at this husband of hers and gone you know gosh i've, I've really struck the jackpot here he's king of a you know, of a powerful, rich kingdom. Uh, and he's a bit of a looker as well. Um, I don't know, and I don't think it's my job to speculate on Edward's sexuality. I don't think it serves a purpose. But having said that, you know, Edward, like you said, Edward and Isabella have several children, including Edward, the future Edward III. No matter what Braveheart tells you, it's still one of the worst films ever. Um Thank you for mentioning Braveheart. I was trying to think of how to get that into the conversation. <laughs> um, and there you go. Perfect. Yeah, absolutely. There Braveheart was wrong. Braveheart is definitely wrong. Mel Gibson is not the father of Edward III. You know, I'm not even... Right, I'm not she even was... A, <laughs> I'm not even oh, going to spoilers alert because you don't need to watch Braveheart if you haven't. Uh, and if you have, you understand why you don't need to watch it. Sure. And she she was too young even, right? She was like nine or 10 or something. She was a child when he died and all that, right? Like well, it was just uh, completely far off. Absolutely. Um, as off the top of my head, William Wallace was, was executed in 1305, which puts her at the most maybe 10 years old. So yeah, um, as horrendous and as horrific as that sounds, I don't think it was even probably biological, biologically possible. Um, and she was probably still in France at that point. Anyway, I digress. And no was- one take Braveheart at face value everybody just go in knowing it's going to be entertainment but not historically accurate in any way there are way better films about the period there are way better (laughs) films um, that people should definitely watch anyway edward and isabella's family we'll put that in the show notes yes the better films to watch (laughs) (laughs) right edward and isabella had several children and edward actually had illegitimate children as well so you know it wasn't just that he dislikes you know women he might have just really really liked Piers Gaveston um and and other chaps as well um but yeah he he for me is just the most unfortunately placed king in English history I think he is wedged between the two most perfectly Plantagenet kings England had in Edward I and his son Edward III you know both led consistently successful military campaigns against you know enemies old and new um and yet here's edward ii in the middle of the two of them who's known for losing to the scots very famously um at the battle of bannockburn and being bisexual or or gay and that's kind of you know where his story ends but he was as far as you know the 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 chronicles go a very funny very likable man um and i'm sure isabella you know fell fell somewhat if not politically, you know, maybe emotionally in love with him. And and I think, you know, the fact that they had several children, yes, it is both of their political duty and it's Isabella's most important job. But, you know, in you know, there has to be some level of attraction for that to happen. You know, so I don't think it's that far of a stretch. Uh, sure. to assume. Even at the at the very least a, a friendship where Absolutely. they acknowledge that this is our job and get to it. <laughs> absolutely do your duty and all that but they were both raised very similarly they were both you know very intelligent um they were both you know fans of you know being outside and you know they probably had a lot in common um but ultimately too many other things got in the way i think of them having a truly successful happy marriage uh, including edward himself well then speaking of the things that got in the way edward wasn't the only one who had <clears throat> favorites or, you know, lovers on the side, right? Isabella did her part in that too. So do you think, um, well, maybe you could introduce us to actually her her additions to the, to the relationship. And do you think that it was kind of a revenge thing that she did that? Or maybe if we just build on that they had a friendship, maybe she really just liked these other people. 
Yeah, and I think similar to Edward, this is what we kind of hang our hat on when we talk about Isabella. Um, and I'll just I'll just kind of thought, go backwards a little bit just to, to to introduce these these people again. So after the death of of Gaveston, um, we have a I was going to say a period of peace, but we don't. Um, I'd be a liar if I said that. We famously have the the Bannockburn campaign, we'll call it, in thirteen fourteen, where Edward is utterly humiliated um in in june of, of 1314 you know berwick castle sorry sterling castle is is taken back by the scots he has to run back to england with his tails between with his tail between his legs um, and then in 1315 we have a great famine that you know again puts him on the back foot more pressure from the nobles to do something uh, and then we introduce um two people luckily they have the same name we have hugh dispenser the elder and hugh dispenser the younger Hugh Dispenser the Younger becomes very much the new favourite, replacing Piers Gaveston. But the difference here is he isn't a social climber. He is an established member of the upper nobility. Um, he and his father come from a long line of Hugh Dispensers. I think there's I think there's four or five in a row. Again, medieval history is not known for its originality when it comes to names. Um, but ultimately, in a nutshell, to wrap up very quickly. Hugh Spencer is even more despised than P.S. Gaveston pretty much ever was because um, as well as taking the the lands, the titles and everything like that, he basically runs England on behalf of Edward, declaring, you know, de facto war on the marcher lords between those, those lords between England and Wales and the very much notoriously um, violent part of England and Wales. Um, forces in Edward and England to essentially go to war with itself uh, in the 1320s. Um, and one of the nobles who goes against Edward and the dispensers is a chap called Roger Mortimer, um, who again comes from a long line of Roger Mortimers. So again, I might refer to multiple Roger Mortimers as much as I re refer to multiple Hugh dispensers. I will do my best to keep them all nice and neat, um, but it's even hard to say, never mind to remember who's who. Um, but yeah, one of these lords is Roger Mortimer, who is, like I said, a lord whose main kind of power base is in the in that kind of grey area between um, England and Wales. And, and for context, that's been a grey area for you know two two three hundred years since the the, Nor the Norman Conquest. Um, notoriously violent, and you know, kind of like a Wild West area of the British Isles. Um, but yeah. Roger Mortimer goes to war with other nobles, goes to war against Edward and the dispensers, ends up getting captured um, and is placed into the Tower of London, which is famously um, difficult to escape from. Um, but Roger Mortimer does escape from the Tower of London, one of a handful of people to be able to do that ever. Um, but he escapes to France, um, where you know a lot of English disgruntled nobles go to, they go to the the court of the French king, um, because again, at this point, the ties culturally between England and France are very, very, uh, still very much there. Um, at least, you know, for, for this generation, it's probably the last generation, I would say, where they're still so close. Um, but yeah, Roger Mortimer, remember the name because, and I'm sure we will, we will touch on him um, in literally about a minute, um, is, is a very, very important character in this story. So you just mentioned actually that the ties between France and England. What was the status of the relationship uh, during this time? And what do you think that Isabella was doing for the relationship? So first and foremost, Isabella was used as a political tool from the moment she, um, you know, was betrothed to Edward in um, the 1290s. So <clears throat> her job, first and foremost, is that political go-between. It's really important to note here that England still holds some land in what today we would call France. It's not Normandy and Anjou and Aquitaine anymore. It's it's just the area kind of south Aquitaine called Gascony. Um, and this is still held by Edward II at this point of England as a, a thief of the French crown. So several times in her life Isabella is used by Edward um, as a proxy um, to discuss matters of Gascony with her father and then her brothers 
Louis X um, and Philip V, and then later Charles IV. Her three of her brothers rule very, very quickly after each other. Um, she is used as a diplomatic, um, overseas diplomat um, quite a few times, um, especially over swearing fealty for Gascony. This is something that has caused kings of England problems before. Um, you know, we see it with with Henry III, we see it with Richard the Lionheart, Henry II. All of them have some kind of stake in Greater France, we'll call it, whether it is the whole of Aquitaine or it's, you know, it is just the, you know, there's the small sliver of land, which is Gascony. They all have to basically say thank you to the French crown. Thanks for that. I'll, I'll look after that for you. Um, but you are still my overlord. So literally from the moment of the Norman conquest, as William the Conqueror was a vassal of the French crown, the relationship was always going to be difficult. You know, two kings, but one was slightly more of a king than the other. So Isabella's role was always going to be important, not just the fact that she, in terms of, from a blood point of view, tied the two houses, you know, Plantagenet and, and Capet together. She was a, like I said, she was the the perfect go-between between her her blood family and her um, marital family, um, because as we'll see later, that relationship is tested several times. Now I'm I'm sitting here wondering if we should talk about because I obviously want to mention right that that she was called the she wolf of France and we haven't we've you know we've gotten through I don't know thirty minutes or so of chatting about her and there doesn't seem to be any awful cruel things that she's doing so. In the story of her, do you feel that we are at the point now where we can start talking about this kind of vicious, you know, cutthroat Isabella, or are we not there yet? When did that start to come out of her? Again, yeah, it's it's a great question because it's one of those things that's been added to her name much later. Um, certainly up until this point, she was probably a very popular queen in England. You know, she's not she's not doing anything wrong. And if anything, she's the, uh, she's absolutely the victim in much of what Edward is doing, whether it's with Pierce Gaveston or, or Hugh Spencer. Right. Right. It's much later that she becomes known as the she-wolf. She's not the only person to be called a she-wolf, but she's probably the most famous to get this, this horrible title. Um, but yeah, I think in terms of when it, it's around, it's around now. Um, she again, like I said, is used as this political go between between her her father and the brothers and her husband Edward, and most famously, this comes uh, in the kind of mid twelve uh, sorry the mid thirteen twenties. Um, again, Edward the Second has been asked to swear fealty for his lands in Gascony. Um, this is the um, we've got Charles the Fourth on the throne. It gets very messy with who is King of France at this point because, like I said, three of her brothers um, rule um, very very quickly between the years of sort of um, thirteen fourteen and thirty twenty eight. There's there's four kings of France, um, and repeatedly Edward is is told to swear fealty, and by this time he's like, nope, I'm not doing it anymore. I've already done it recently. I don't need to go again. So the French invade Gascony, which obviously causes Edward to go, whoa, whoa, okay, you know, let's talk about this. Um, I'm going to send my wife. I'm going to send your sister. You can talk about it. I'm not leaving. So Edward cannot leave England because um, he's terrified of what will happen to Hugh Spencer. Um, for context, um, we are in the middle of a civil war in England. Um, the dispensers, again, are, you know, trying to carve out this mini kingdom for themselves. And, you know, Edward is footing the bill financially and kind of uh, reputationally as well. So Isabella is sent to her brother's court, again, very diplomatically manages to calm things down um, in the in the Gascony region. And, you know, all her brother asks is, I all I need is Edward to come over and swear fealty and all is forgiven, we're, we're, you know, we're all good. Edward still, he's, he's at this point, he's going, okay, cool, I'm probably going to have to. Um, and then right at the last minute, he goes, nope, I'm not doing it. But then Isabella has an idea. 
And this is where her intelligence really starts to come through. Her idea is, well, why not just send our son and heir, you know, Prince Edward, um, the future Edward III, send him, because it was fairly common for sons and heirs to swear fealty in kind of lieu of their fathers, because, you know, Edward is going to be king at some point, so he may as well swear fealty now. So this was a completely, completely normal thing for people to do, so it wasn't completely out of the blue. But Edward II should have seen what was about to happen coming, if you ask me. Um, he's like, fine, I'll stay here with you, and I'll send Edward. So Edward, the future Edward III, is sent with his mother um, back to France, and she now has one of the two things, one of the three things, sorry, that she needs to put this plan in place. I don't know how long she had this plan. I don't know if this was just, you know, a coming together of, of all the right pieces at the right time. But essentially, um, she has a son and heir holding the key to the future of England. And she also, at this point, meets up with a, you know, someone familiar, Roger Mortimer. Roger Mortimer is almost the polar opposite of her husband, Edward II. And he is everything that you would probably want, I would say, as a medieval queen. He was he was a fierce military leader. He'd led campaigns against, obviously against her husband, but he was, you know, late 30s, tall, handsome. Again, all these very generic words, but he seemed to, um, you know, really, really get Isabella and, and him the same with, with her, uh, sorry, with her, with him. And those two amongst with other allies as well the you know other nobles who had been um, disaffected by edward started to gather um mercenary bands in an attempt to invade england and uh, depose her husband so this is where this kind of the she-wolf starts to emerge because um let's forget edward for a second you know this woman again very very sexist time this woman is going you know, outside of her marital bed and she's got this new lover on the scene, Roger Mortimer, you know, he should be loyal to his king and all this kind of carry on. Um, when, in matter of fact, I personally don't know, I wasn't there, obviously, I don't know if I believe they were lovers or not. Again, like Edward, I don't think it's relevant. I think Roger provided Isabella with the things that she needed at the time. They seemed a better match in terms of personality he was you know strong and forceful as she was whereas edward was very um you know very personal and, and probably quite you know meek and mild um but the third thing that she needed really was some kind of political backing from someone else her brother couldn't outwardly say yes i'm supporting my sister's claim to the english throne she didn't have a claim a she didn't have any blood claim there. B, she was a woman. And C, there was a completely legitimate king sat on the throne. One thing they did have was a very, very malleable heir in the form of Edward III. One thing he didn't have was a wife. So Isabella, again, showing her political intelligence and diplomatic kind of um, intelligence, um, saw an opportunity to get a much-needed ally in the form of um, Hainaut, which is an area um, in around Flanders, the Belgium area now. I'm very, very poor with geography as well as maps. Um, but essentially, Edward III is betrothed to Philippa of Hainaut, who he does later marry, um, which gets Isabella and Roger's cause some well-needed kind of, um, you know, real meat on it um, in terms of this this planned invasion force. She then does leave France with this um, mercenary band um, with, with Roger as its military leader. Um, this is in September of 1326. Lands in England and almost completely unopposed. You know, usurps her husband. Um, Edward II is removed from power um, as he tries to flee um, with Hugh Spencer, he is captured um, and later 
executed in one of the worst ways imaginable and i'm happy to go into details if you want um but essentially i definitely want <laughs> of course that's going to be one of the questions so we're definitely going to come back to that <laughs> I, I thought so i thought so um she returns to England with Roger Mortimer and most importantly, Edward III, who is um, basically declared king um, in lieu of his, of his father. Um, he's only, you know, a young, a young lad at this point. He's only a teenager. Um, so he doesn't have any of his own power. And basically his mother, and we will say it just because it's easier, her lover, Roger Mortimer, um, rule England for the next few years and it doesn't go well for her, to say the least. Okay, so we will come back to that that section in a moment. Um, and I'm going to come back to Edward's death also in a moment. But just quickly, I just want to focus again on her, her meeting in France that she went to with Edward III, or the future Edward III. Was she able to secure this alliance or this betrothal between Philippa and her son without her husband's say? Technically, no. She wasn't supposed to, but she basically does anyway. One of the things that Isabella does at this time, which I think truly does remove any blame or any kind of adulterous blame being placed on it, is she declares herself a widow as if, you know, Edward II has, had died already. Um, and she does this because, and I can't remember the exact quote, but she says, you know, marriage is supposed to be between two people. Um, and yet there is a third in mine, Hugh Spencer. Uh, and whilst that third person is there, I, you know, cannot be married to this man, Edward II. You know, she starts wearing black um, as a widow. Um, and I think this is, you know, truly a piece of political, like, you know, mastermind ship. She really does play her hand perfectly um, because everyone just kind of goes, yeah, that makes sense. He is completely out of line. And he has got this favourite, again, who's completely, you know, taking everything and more than he's given. So, again, I think this is just, this is a series of very, very intelligent political decisions that Isabella makes um, that leads to... um, a very, very successful campaign. And for context, when they land in England, uh, Roger Mortimer and Isabella, you know, a shot isn't fired. Nobody, nobody fights anyone. Um, she basically um, chases Edward and Hugh who try and escape on a boat. They don't escape. They capture both of them. Edward II is held in Barclay Castle um, in Gloucestershire. And like I said, Hugh is, is, um, is summarily, executed he there's a there's a mock trial very similar to Piers Gaveston but whereas Gaveston simply had his head cut off which obviously is awful but you know Hugh was um strung up he was hung he had his genitals cut off he had his entrails removed and burned in front of him and before being drawn and quartered and what I think is again very similar to the to boiled bones. One of the coolest things is is Isabella's response to this is she watches the entire execution, apparently just eating an apple, um, without even looking away. She watches and never breaks it, never smiles, never looks away, just completely stony faced. Watches this man be utterly ripped apart, um, and I don't blame her. I think you know this man cost her her marriage you know, her family, you know, Hugh Spencer also oversaw the um, removal of her children and pretty much all of her land that she was, she was eventually given by Edward um, in response to, you know, growing um, resentment towards, you know, people being French, you know, Isabella was French, but she, she was culturally English at this point. Um, So yeah, I think, you know, the execution of Hugh is as horrendous as it was, I'm pretty sure Isabella really enjoyed it, and I don't blame her at all. And there's the she-wolf. So, now, do you think that, um, I don't necessarily think that that anybody would have expected that outcome, but do you think that Edward II and Hugh kind of saw anything coming? I don't think they do, because I think they would have stopped. I think ultimately, I think if they would have considered themselves at least half intelligent, they would have stopped. Um, I think the biggest blunder was sending Edward III to France because the the heir is ultimately the biggest 
you know, bargaining chip that each side of this conflict, you know, can have. You know, if Edward II holds his heir personally, then he holds the future to the kingdom. If Isabella does, then then she does the same. And people like, you know, they were sick of Edward II. So if an alternative comes along, they're not going to go, nope, I respect the fact that Edward is king. Um, you know, they're just, you know, they weren't usurping the throne in, in the name of Roger Mortimer. I don't think that would have landed at all. Um, I, they were doing it in the name of Edward III. So it had been a tough few years with war, with famine, everything like that. It had been tough. So, you know, as we see throughout history, people like a scapegoat. And yes, Edward II is to blame for much of it. But he was a very, very easy scapegoat. Having said that, back to your original question, I think it could have been avoided. I think it absolutely could have been avoided if Edward had just played his hand better. You know, he'd already seen what happened with Piers Gaveston. He'd already seen the response to a favourite in that situation. He shouldn't have done it with Hugh Dispenser. He, he absolutely shouldn't have done it again. And he probably would have continued to live as king um, much, much later um, than he did. Like I said, he was held in, in Barclay Castle, um, but he wasn't held for very long. There were several attempts to free him. Um, and he, <laughs> I don't really know how to say it because I don't know whether I believe it or not, but he was dispatched, let's say, whether that meant killed or he escaped. I, I don't know. I'm happy to go into that if you want, but ultimately he stopped being king in 1327. We'll say that. Yeah, let's let's go into that. Awesome. So, <laughs> Edward II famously, or apparent, famously apparently, um, is murdered um, by a pretty horrendous method. Um, and there's pretty much no conte- um, contemporary evidence of, of this specific method, um, where a red-hot poker um, is is thrust into him in an area that you probably wouldn't want a red-hot poker thrust, um, probably taking a bit of a jibe at his, his probable homosexuality. Um, the other probably more reasonable um, way of thinking he was murdered was he was probably smothered to death. Uh, again, I do believe if he was, it was on the direct orders of Roger Mortimer, maybe not so Isabella. Um, but what I actually think happened and kind of, Historians are pretty split on what happened or not. Some weeks I'm he was murdered. Some weeks I'm I'm where I am now, which is he escaped uh, or was freed, um, and he found his way to Italy, where he became a hermit, um, lived in a religious community, and lived for many more years quite happily um, as a as a religious recluse. And there is also rumours that he also visited the, his son Edward III um, later in his life. Um, also another reason, and one of the main reasons why I think he didn't die in 1327 is the one title that Edward III did not claim or did not take when he became king in 1327 was the title Prince of Wales. That was his father's title. Um, famously Edward I want needed a son born in Wales so he could claim the title Prince of Wales. Um, and he didn't claim that until much later. And uh, now it's obviously it's associated with the with the heir um, to the throne, um, Prince William. I think he's officially Prince of Wales now, um, but he's de facto Prince of Wales since his his father Charles III became king um, late last year. But at this point, you know, Edward probably should have just claimed that title along with you know everything else, but he didn't. And I think that's because he knew his father wasn't alive as well. But it's a bit of a conspiracy theory, but there's quite a lot of evidence to say that he was in Italy um, in a hermitage. I was wondering why why you um, were saying that you're not of the, of the school of thought anymore that he died. What makes you waver? Because you, you said earlier that, that you sometimes are thinking he was murdered, sometimes mm. you think he escaped. What makes you go back and forth? I think it's too neat that he's murdered. I think it's too easy for us to say, you know, this is where it ended, this is where it started for Edward III. I think, you know, we see it later with, with Richard II 
who is is murdered in um, 1399 at Pontefract Castle. It's a very, very neat way to end end a reign. And another thing that's, again, back to Isabella, is really important that she does, again, as a politician, she very publicly declares the death of her husband. She has the body displayed publicly in a, in a way saying, look, you cannot have any doubt. He is dead, I promise you. I think it's, you know, protesting a little bit too much. But also, I'm of, I'm usually of the school of thought that whatever it looks like most likely happened is, is probably what happened when it comes to history. I'm not one of those people that usually, you know, that goes off and goes, oh, yeah, it was definitely, you know, Roger Mortimer on the grassy knoll. It was it's pretty much usually what it says on the tin but for once there's quite a lot of evidence to say he does escape so again i'm not sure i think either way it's very very important and it shapes the future of england it definitely shapes um edward iii's life whether it's his father survives or not um but yeah it it's i don't think we'll ever find out the only thing i'm certain of is he didn't die from the red hot poker I'm fairly confident that is a much later, if not probably a Tudor invention. I was just going to say, who do you think invented that then? Those Tudors. Those, those best uh, well, Tudors. Then whose, whose body do you think it was if she so publicly displayed her dead husband? <clears throat> I, it could have literally been anyone. I mean, back to the point I made at the start about the very generic um, descriptions of, of, of monarchs and of, of nobility, all they needed to find was somebody that, could be described as Edward II, the first, you know, English monarch to have a somewhat lifelike portrait taken was Richard II. Um, what a hundred years later, or nearly a whole, nearly what 60, 70 years later. So we didn't have, we don't know what Edward II looked like, and it's fair to say that people at the time also didn't know what Henry II, sorry, Edward II looked like. Um, so right, there's no Henrys in this story. There's no Henrys. <laughs> There's no, no Henry's. There's no Matildas either. <laughs> it's freaking my brain out. I feel like I need right. to Henry somebody or other. Um, but again, to counter my own point, something that is important about, about Isabella and the death of Edward II is she is famously buried with the heart of Edward II, um, much like obviously when she dies in um, 1358, she is buried at Greyfriars with the heart of her husband in a little silver um, kind of chalice so maybe maybe he was murdered it's it's really hard to tell that's so gross and romantic <laughs> okay so let's talk about his now he's gone so he's either dead or he has escaped he's not there we know that and you had mentioned that it was it didn't go well it didn't go well when he was gone and she was left there so give us a little bit of that story now because that's i think where it gets interesting where now we can focus on really just isabella and we don't have to talk about her husband anymore because he's not there yeah and uh, just a note on that i think it's i've really tried to make sure i talk about isabella as much as can because as we figured out with this story is it's really easy to talk about the men in her life whether it's her brother her father her lover, her husband, her, her son, whoever it is. So, yes, we can now just talk about her as, you know, as the woman that she was. Right, Before- right. And, and and I think that it's it's not necessarily doing her a disservice that we had other people to talk about because it shapes who she was and who she was becoming so mm. that we get to the point where she is now and she's the focus. But all those things that happened to her before that were really noteworthy. So it makes sense that they're what we talk about up until now true 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 i think you've just said about the experiences and i think those experiences did completely shape her her regency um she um basically ruled england for a handful of years pretty much on a road yes there was roger mortimer there pulling the strings maybe behind the scenes but you know she was the de facto queen of england in her own right which is something to be um something to you know really I guess be proud of if you're Isabella and, and we can look back, you know, through the lens of history and, and, and see that for what it is. It's an incredible achievement. What she does do though, is she unfortunately makes all of the same mistakes that Edward II makes, which is showering her favorite Roger Mortimer this time with land and title. And the two of them basically run the country into the ground. 
um, this isn't great, obviously. And it's like the first and only time in her life, I think she makes poor political judgment um, throughout her life. We can see that she's made excellent um, di- diplomatic choices in terms of um, her, con- her go between between France and England, um, who to align herself with, whether it was, um, you know, Roger Mortimer, her brother, whoever it was, she's done a pretty good job. It's at this moment that, you know, she she sees that she doesn't have any enemies. Um, and, I, and in a sense, she doesn't. Um, but the one person that she doesn't really see coming um, is her son, the te- technically the king, Edward III, who, again, is only, he's only like 16 um, at this point in, in 1330, um, so three years after um, the apparent death um, of his of his father, um, it's around this time um, that Edward, very importantly, has a son. So I mentioned earlier about the the power of the heir being so you know prevalent. Um, Edward has now at this point had a son. Shockingly, he's called Edward. Um, as we have a run of Henrys, we now have a run of Edwards. Um, All the Edwards, yep. <laughs> absolutely. This Edward is one of my favourite Edwards. This is Edward the Black Prince. He doesn't become king, but that's a story for another day. Um, he now has... Oh, are you coming back to talk about him now too? I mean... I'll get it on the calendar. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always happy to. Um so the, the political tool that Isabella has, you know, a few years before is she has the heir. Edward, King Edward III, now has that same power. Um, and he's able to use that, um, or he able he's at least he's at least viewing that as a a reason to, you know, really put his own mark on his kingship. Um so in 1330, um he says enough's enough, and he sees Mortimer as the problem rather than his mother. Um he had a very good relationship with his mother from what I can tell. Um, and it would have been very difficult for him to blame his mother. Um, I think for what had happened. And I think that's quite fair. Um, so he gets together with a bunch of pals, um, and they track Mortimer and his mother to Nottingham castle. Um, and in what sounds genuinely like a made up story, because it's, it sounds like a, um, bit of a like you know an action thriller story him and his very young friends like i said he's only a teenager at this point break into nottingham castle um capture roger mortimer and his mother and basically says i am the king now i won't have anybody else making decisions for me um and everyone goes yeah cool amazing um isabella is pretty much left alone she is left to retire um quite comfortably and like I said, I don't think Edward ever really blamed his mother, or if he did, um, it was a personal conversation between those two. It was never made a public uh, public issue, but Roger Mortimer was, as I'm sure we can imagine, executed. Um, he was saved the traitor's execution. He was not hung, drawn, and quartered. He was just hung, um, which was more merciful. But either way, um, Isabella was truly distraught. Um, you know, she's rumoured to have said when Edward stormed the castle, you know, don't, don't, don't harm my Mortimer. Don't, don't do this. Sorry. It's really weird. I keep saying Mortimer. My cat's name is Mortimer. So I keep thinking of him. He's not named after Roger Mortimer. Um, but yeah, she's very, very, you know, passionately involved with this man, whether it was love or not. Um, but he is removed politically and physically he's executed. Um, but unlike his father, Edward doesn't hold a grudge. Um, Edward III um, grants back the lands to Roger's son and then grandson, who were both called Roger Mortimer, um, with the third Roger Mortimer in this story, his grandson becoming one of Edward's most important uh, military leaders, a founding member of the Order of the Garter. So, you know, he does forgive and forget. Um, But yeah, Isabella truly, like I said, makes the only political mistake, I think, of her life, which is trusting Roger Mortimer, not to just be like Piers Gaveston or Hugh Spencer. So we're here at the end of her story, and I'm still not convinced that she was so cruel as she is so often depicted. And I think even when you think about, you know, contemporary, you know, even just movies or stories or things like that, um, the she-wolf thing is really 
her moniker. So do you do you agree with that? I don't think her reputation is fair at all. Um, I think anybody in the position that she found herself in as a as a young girl growing up in a foreign land, surrounded by people she'd never met, speaking, you know, at least, you know, in different accents, if not a different language. I think getting out of it alive with her son on the throne um, shows incredible fortitude and mental toughness, um, to use an American football term. I think she showed, you know, throughout her life and her career, a real understanding of politics and a real understanding of the kind of finer points of diplomacy. And I think she's very much boiled down to a relationship with a man which may have lasted five years. Um, you know, it, it was her her relationship with Roger, Roger Mortimer was very much real. Again, whether it was sexual or not, I have no idea. And again, I don't think it's totally relevant. But I think if you make it about that, she then suddenly becomes a she-wolf again. Um, and I think she's far more than that. I think she's one of the most poorly remembered queens of England. Um, you know, we look back to, I don't know, Eleanor of Castile, a much more popular queen. Um, we get the Eleanor crosses that are dotted around England. Um, you can still see some of them today. Whereas Isabella was far more politically active, uh, more far more politically intelligent, and that's no knock on Eleanor of Castile. But, you know, as an example, I think she is boiled down to this one relationship, very similar to what Edward II is as well. And I think, again, he was dealt a very, very bad hand in terms of his time for ruling. Like I said, there was this, this drawn-out war with Scotland that wasn't going his way. He tried to fix that. He failed. There was famines. Um, you know, the, the power of the French throw was only growing at this point. So he was he was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. Yes, he made terrible decisions, but I don't think that's solely on him. And I'd say it's the same with Isabella. I think I might know the answer to our final question, but I have to ask, because you are the go-to for these ladies, applying all the pressure, if you have to choose... Isabella of France or Eleanor of Aquitaine? Who's your girl? I mean, it's not going to shock anyone, but it is, of course, Eleanor of Aquitaine. Um, Matilda also needs to get a mention as well. You know, the, the true Queen of England in my eyes from our last episode. But Isabella of France gets kind of the, the honourable mention just for the most completely misunderstood Queen. Um, and also... A bit of a tangent, if if I may, Isabella is the reason, I truly believe, is the reason England is as England is today. She was a princess of France before she was anything else. And I've mentioned previously that after her father died um, in 1314, three of her brothers um, reigned within a period of 14 years. Um basically ending the Capetian line of French kings, which, you know, was a 300-year dynasty. Um, and ultimately, her offspring, Edward III, uh, amongst others, were some of the, in my eyes, the, the primary heirs to the kingdom of France. Um, and through her bloodline, we get the Hundred Years' War. Whether we see that as a good thing or not, that's by the by, it's a conflict that spanned 116 years, that's irrelevant. But what is relevant is what came out of that conflict, which is an idea of Englishness that didn't exist before. I've already said that, you know, culturally, England and France were very similar. Language, you know, across both these kingdoms, French was the language spoken, at least at court. After the Hundred Years' War, France had dropped out of fashion in England for obvious reasons. You know, Henry V was the first king, probably his first language was, was French. Uh, sorry, it was English. Um, and this is, you know, twofold um, because he wasn't born as a prince. He, he was born as the son of a duke. Um, but also because the Hundred Years' War had been raging for so long at this point, the idea of being French wasn't as fashionable as it was 100 years before. And you can boil this all down to the fact that Isabella was the only surviving child um, of a Capetian king who had run out of sons. The reason we have 
the Hundred Years' War and the reason that Isabella wasn't able to see her son become King of France as well as King of England is 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 boiled down to to a to a sexist law that the French crown seemed to exploit at this time and this time alone, which is is Salic law, which saw that no land or title could be inherited through a woman, which barred Henry the Third from the from the throne. This didn't stop. Um, it happening previously, um, but the idea of probably having an Englishman on the throne of France was was not what the French wanted. As 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 an Englishman, as I understand, if it was the other way around, I, I'd totally get it. Um, but, you know, this is where we see the, the Valois monarchy of France. You know, the Valois House of Valois appear um, as cousins, far more distantly related than than Edward III, as a grandson um, of a French king. So Isabella has a lot more to do with being English than Eleanor of Aquitaine ever did, and a lot more to do with being English than than many queens that came before her. But she was arguably, technically, on name alone, the most French. You always bring such a, a great perspective, I think, to, to the conversations and to the stories. And we really want to thank you again for being here today, Chris. And I think going forward, we have a list of other people that we would love to chat with you about in the future. Uh, but for now, let's talk about, before I let you go, let's talk a little bit about some upcoming things that you can tell our listeners about that you've got going on where they can support you. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. And and again, thank you so much for having me back. It is a genuine pleasure um, to talk to you about these, uh, about these people. Um, but yeah, in terms of what I've got going on, um, by the time this episode airs, I'm going to assume that um, the latest and in my opinion probably the greatest edition of the historians magazine which i'm very grateful to be a part of um will be uh launching very soon um it's all about medieval history um in case you haven't already guessed that's kind of my thing so i'm very very excited i hope people check it out it'll be available to read online for free you can also purchase um physical copies um, as well, which helps out so much in terms of what we can provide as a magazine. Um, it is available internationally as well, so you're not missing out if you're not in the UK. Um, we have some really, really cool articles in it. We do have one. One of our features is about Eleanor of Aquitaine, but I have not written it. Someone um, far more qualified than me has, but I will leave that um, to when it comes out. Um, but yeah, if you want to find out more about the Historians Magazine, obviously you can send me a message on Instagram or Twitter um, at Chris Riley History, um, or you can follow the magazine at the Historians Magazine on all the normal places. Um, we're on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, um, all sorts. And also you can actually just find all of our previous editions of the magazine, including the one that's currently out, which is all about ancient history, um, at www.com thehistoriansmagazine.com where you can find all of our previous editions um, and loads of other stuff as well but yeah thank you so much um it has been a genuine pleasure on my on my side anyway oh likewise it's been awesome thank you so much again and we will definitely look into the historians magazine again as chris mentioned you can find it at historians magazine on all of social media and with that i want to say thank you so much to chris riley uh, again, to our listeners who wrote in with all the questions and to everybody listening to this week's episode. As always, we appreciate your support and hope you'll tune in again next time as we continue to ask our experts the pressing questions you want answered. And if you love the Tudor's Dynasty podcast and want to show even more support, please consider becoming a patron where you'll not only receive the great content we offer now, but extra insider research, information, prizes, and other exciting opportunities only offered by subscribing. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.